So I, I actually just got home from a five-day retreat at Spirit Rock, which was really wonderful. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll look and see, I'll, I'll give a talk, um, and I'll look and see what, it, what, it, what talks look like, uh, the, the best talks that I've given over the last few years. And so we'll see if this is one of them or not. We'll, we'll try. And um, if you read the traditional Buddhist text, the pivotal one of the pivotal stories, maybe the most pivotal story, is the story of the Buddha's awakening. Not simply, I mean, there's a, and there's many different components of that. You know how he he's a prince and wealthy and noble and. Uh, has kind of a wonderful life and he leaves that life and lives an ascetic life for six years and then realize that the asceticism that he's practicing won't lead him to awakening. And then at some point he realizes what's called the middle way, that there's a middle way between asceticism and uh, hedonism, between eternalism and uh, nihilism, and he, he finally sits down and he vows to awaken. And then the pivotal story is the story of the night of his awakening. And, you know, we have a lot of idealization of awakening. Like it's this really great thing and this great process and we let go and then we're awake and we're happy and we're, you know, and then we're handsome and beautiful and we, we get the right mate and the best job and everything's fine. and. Um, but if you really look at a lot of the um, archetypal material around awakening, like the progress of insight, which is a, a schema of, uh, of deeper and deeper levels of emptiness or letting go of the sense of self that are characterized by things like uh, terror, misery, repulsion, things like that, you see it's not quite what it's stacked up to be. It's not quite what you hear. And, and I realized that um, I wanted to tell you a little about the night of his awakening, and you see it again. You see that actually, oh, it's not just fun. It's not just, oh, this is great and I'm getting awakened. Because what I want to tell you about is what he had to go through um, on the night of his awakening. And really what I, I want to um, begin to posit or... or um, um, talk about is Mara. And Mara is the um, counterpoint to the Buddha in Buddhist mythology. Mara, Mara, Mara is actually, the word Mara um, is um, the same word as death in Pali. And, um, and there's a whole series of teachings called Maran, Mara, Maranasati. And it means um, the a mindfulness of death, and it comes from Mara. And uh, Mara is sometimes called the evil one or the tempter, um, and is the, you know, would be the devil in Western cosmology. And so Mara actually tries to obstruct the Buddha's awakening. Mara attacks the Buddha. Mara, what, what are called the armies of Mara attack the Buddha as the Buddha sits there vowing to awaken. 
And there's some there's a whole series of suttas called the Mara suttas, which talk about how Mara attacks the Buddha before he's awakened, and then even after he's awakened, um, Mara keeps attacking the Buddha. And so I'll just read you some of the some of the ways that Mara attacks the Buddha. <clears throat> Mara assumes a fearsome guise with a thousand arms. His demons make eerie noises to generate fear. Remember, you know, the Buddha's sitting out there alone under a tree in the forest. So his demons make eerie noises to generate fear, rain, hail, showers of fire, thunder, and an earthquake are also used. Um, and then and then the Buddha still sits there. The Buddha has his resolve and his steadfastness and his dedication to awakening. And he's vowed to sit there until he awakens. And so Mara has a, a really a palette of, you know, attacks, armies. And it said, then the three daughters of Mara come. And they have apt names like Tanha, Arati, and Raga, which mean craving, boredom, and lechery. And they conspire on the principle that men's tastes vary to assume forms ranging from those of virgins to mature women. And they display wiles by which any ordinary man's heart would have burst or, a, or hot blood would have gushed from his mouth or he would have gone mad or crazy or he would have shriveled, dried up and withered like a cut green rush. So that's, that's the attack of the, the daughters of Mara. But our hero, <laughs> unlike normal men who would have burst their hearts by them, was unmoved by their charms and wiles, and he rejects them with a whole series of similes and poems. And you hear his steadfastness. He says, you have tried to split a rock by poking it with lily stems. You have tried to dig a hill out with your nails. You have tried to chew up iron with your teeth. You have tried to push down a tree with your chest. You know, and he's talking about how solid he is, how immovable he is. And then it continues, and I'm just giving you a teeny bit of all the armies of Mara. I'm just giving you a little taste here, because it's actually not what my talk's about. I'll get there. But when, after all the armies of Mara failed, then Mara himself comes to attack the Bodhisattva, which is what the Buddha was called before he's enlightened. And at the penultimate moment, before the Buddha's awakened, Mara comes and challenges his right to awaken. He challenges his right to be liberated. And he says to him, he says, who do you think you are? What right do you think you have to awaken? And this is the penultimate, this is the last challenge that Mara throws at the Buddha. And the Buddha, who's sitting there, sitting on the earth, then um, he is a mudra that he does. And the mudra is called the earth-touching mudra. And if you can see, it looks like this. And with his hand, he touches the earth. And he 
the earth acknowledges his right, which of course is our right, to awaken, his right to be here, our right to be here. And in, in, in the mythological, if we look at it mythologically, it's really the feminine that then supports the awakening. It's actually very interesting. I didn't say this, but it's, it just hit me how the Buddha actually um, uh, keeps going to the feminine principle in order um, to guide him along the way. Because when he was an ascetic, which is much more of a male, has much more of a male archetypal uh, uh, quality to it, and he sees that the asceticism won't bring him um, awakening, and he almost dies. It's a young, uh, what's called a milkmaid comes and brings him some rice milk to eat. And he takes, it's the first time he's taken real food in, you know, a year. And, and the food sustains him and nourishes him and then restores his body, which was almost dead. And then he realizes that you actually have to take care of your body, that, that to cut off from the body is not the way to awakening. And so it's interesting that it's the milkmaid, which is, you know, the, the fecundity of the feminine principle, and then it's the earth itself that supports him on the night of his awakening. And then it said that the heaven shone, the Buddha's awakened, and it said that the heaven shone the moon like a maiden with a smile and a sweet-smelling shower of flowers fell down wet with dew. And this is the, the uh, richness of awakening, the beauty of awakening, the life of awakening as it's represented in the mythology and in the archetype. The piece I want to talk about tonight is this penultimate moment, this moment when Mara says, what right do you have to be awakened? This is the voice of judgment. Who do you think you are? Why should you be awakened? What do you think you're doing here? Don't you have better things to do? And this is a voice, this is Mara that we all know. We all know this form of Mara. Judgment, criticism, denigration. A voice that, um, that condemns us. A voice that is always evaluating and finding us not worthy, unworthy devalues us. This is a voice of inner judgment, inner criticism. In psychology it's known as the superego. <clears throat> and this voice, it's, I find it fascinating that, that it's placed at the penultimate moment, the moment before awakening that it comes to stop or block or deny or repress freedom. And I was on, a, was on some kind of retreat um, with a friend of mine who's, let me get it out.
and we were talking about judgment, and I brought up the idea of, uh, you know, what's the function of this critic? What's the function of the inner critic? What's the function of the inner judgment? And Roger Walsh, who's uh, actually a Dzogchen teacher now, and uh, he's done more three-month retreats than anybody I know. I think he's done 13 three-month retreats, Roger Walsh. He's a psychiatrist from UC Irvine. He, he had a few ideas about the function. The existential function is that it maintains the sense of separation, that it always posits us as separate from reality, things, others, ourself, and that it's a mechanism for maintaining a sense of specialness, of being unique in some way, that we're, and, but usually unique in a negative way. This, negative judgment, negative valuing of ourselves. My sense of it is that it always functions to keep the sense of self in place. It always keeps us from going beyond ourselves. It always keeps us within a narrow band of how we know ourselves. So if Eugene lives within this band, this is Eugene here, and if Eugene starts having experiences outside of this band, maybe Eugene has deep grief down here, and it starts to go outside beyond the sense of how I know myself, then the superego starts coming in and saying, oh, what right do you have to feel so bad? Your life's not so bad. You know, look at the people in wherever, New Orleans, Pakistan, wherever, who've just been through an earthquake or a hurricane. Well, you don't, what right do you have? to feel this. And so the feelings get stopped or cut off in some way. Or maybe there's a sense of freedom on the other side. Maybe Eugene starts to feel um, happy for no reason, or um, a sense of peace or ease or joy or just freedom. And then, and then the same voice comes. It's a very creative voice, by the way. But the voice comes and says, oh, what right do you have to feel that, to be so peaceful? Or to, you have stuff to do. You should get to work. You're, you're just hanging out being peaceful? What, oh, you're wasting your time. You know, what good is that? People are suffering. You should go teach Buddhism or something. The voice is always evaluating once in a while, it, it aggrandizes us. It says how great we are, how special. But mostly it tends to be negative, it tends to denigrate, it tends to be dismissive, devaluing, and actually painful. To, if we actually stay present for the experience of the inner judgment, it's painful. And one, one way you can, one interesting way to think about it that you kind of um, highlights this is, just imagine if you had somebody, does everybody know this voice? Let me just see if I'm, okay, okay, we're on track here. Just imagine if you were in the supermarket and somebody was standing behind you saying all the negative things that the inner critic says and walking behind you and telling you that. Oh, why are you buying that? You're spending too much money. You don't really need that. Oh, how come you, how come you never, buy anything good for yourself. And then you go and buy something good and, they say, and the same voice says, 
how come you're spending so much money? You can't afford that. You know, who do you think you are that you should get that? You don't need that. It's an incredibly creative voice. It'll get you coming and going, right? You're walking by, there's an ice cream store. You don't need that ice cream. You've had plenty of sugar. You shouldn't have it. And you say, to hell with it. I'm going to have it, right? You have it, and then it keeps coming, you know. And, or, or really, whatever. Just about anything. It can criticize anything. Anything that makes the superego nervous that the ego will not stay in place will really bring criticism. Any sense of expanding beyond how we usually know ourselves. And so often it'll come in meditation practice. It'll come for people in meditation practice. Actually, their meditation will be fine and they'll be having a lot of criticism. Or they'll have some, something will start to open up and they'll think they're doing it wrong. Maybe some deep feeling calm or some sense of calm or peace or joy or ecstasy. Oh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be attached to it. It's a very interesting Buddhist superego voice. Oh, don't be attached. Right? I don't. I tell people get attached now. Don't even worry about it. And and I really mean it. If you're attached, you'll suffer. But the idea that if you enjoy something, it's wrong. That's the superego. That's that's a judgment. That's not reality. Actually, in you know, if you read about the Buddha's followers and the Buddha himself, they were quite happy, joyous, light-hearted. So one of the characteristics of the judge is it's actually totally uncompassionate. It's almost the opposite of compassion. Compassion understands almost everything, I, I believe. It all makes sense. From the, from the eye of wisdom and the heart of compassion, the vicissitudes of human life make sense. It makes sense if we have a difficult time. It makes sense if we want things. It makes sense if we're confused at times. It's not, it's not an, uh, an avenue for judgment. It makes sense if we get hurt at times. Often the judgment comes um, in our most vulnerable moments. Maybe we fell in love with someone and then it doesn't work out and then we're really critical of ourselves for falling in love. What, what's happening there? Actually, we're probably hurt, sad, grieving. And the, and the critic keeps taking us away from what's actually happening, keeps trying to deny it. In Zen, there's a beautiful phrase. It said, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. Sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. To begin to bring the superego or the judge or the criticism or the harshness or the way we denigrate ourselves or 
condemn ourselves or judge ourselves into the light of mindfulness is to begin to start to be enlightened about delusion, is to begin to see the deluded mind and to begin to see it, to begin to acknowledge it is the beginning of being free from it. It's actually not that it goes away. And this is one of the beautiful uh, understandings of the mythology of the relationship between Buddha and Mara. Even after the Buddha is totally, completely, 100% enlightened, Mara keeps coming. Everybody get that? That's a really interesting archetype. Even though the Buddha is totally free, Mara keeps coming. So even for us, we, we may only be 99% free or liberated, right? <laughs> we can expect Mara to keep coming. How we work with Mara is the question. How we practice with Mara. Because, and it's important because if we can begin to recognize Mara in this form, if we can begin to recognize the judgment, we begin to have the possibility of living, as um, Joko Beck said, she said, to live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. To live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. If we can start backing off the judgment, disidentifying from the judgment, cutting the judgment at times, we can start to be here and the Dharma can unfold very naturally. The Dharma can show itself. Why? Because we are Dharma. There is no Dharma other than us. Reality can begin to show itself if we can give it the space to be here, if we can give ourselves the space to be here. And probably this is important to me because I have a very judgmental mind. <laughs> and it's been great to uh, not have to identify with it. And actually, one of, one of, I'm just thinking one of the first insights I ever had in, quote, insight meditation was about that. And it wasn't about judging myself, but it was about judging others. And I grew up in a very, um, you know, I had a kind of interesting um, teenagerhood. Um, at a very young age, I got to hang out with um, beatniks, like real beatniks at the time. And I was 12 and 13, and it was really exotic and kind of cool, and I really liked it, and they were really interesting people, and then they let me tag along, and I went to parties and stuff. And, and, um, but they had this attitude about squares, right? If, you, if you're old enough, you remember there were beatniks who were hip, and then there were squares, right? And, um, <laughs> and it was kind of judgmental, we could say, the attitude about squares, right? And, and, then, and then as I got a little older, it was the hippie era, and I was a hippie, and I had long hair and hippie clothes and things that hippies did. And it was the same. There was hippies and then there were straight people, 
was that that's how the division was and there was some judgment about the straight people the hippies thought at least the hippies I were around was around we thought we were really cool and then I was also involved in um, radical politics and there was again this split between the left and the rest of the people and um, and when I first sat um, my first retreat I really wanted maybe the first big insight that came given that I'd lived this life where there was always us and them was that there was no us and them that that was an idea that was a belief that was a judgment that I was projecting on lots of people that they were other and that there was a, a kind of pejorative judgment about them and it was beautiful actually to see that it was liberating there was a way that it was a liberating in the sense that it allowed me to come into relationship with people not based on some idea of us and them and we all judge other people we all do all you have to do is watch your mind for a little while and you will see judgments of other people make you'll make assessment in a moment i mean it's not even exactly you doing it it's just what minds do like that we'll judge how people look how they act how they dress how they talk how they walk it's actually great on a silent meditation retreat if you go on a silent retreat where you're not even relating to people and you're judging them so they don't even have to do you know they don't even say anything they don't do anything but you're sitting you know and you're not even looking you're not even supposed to make eye contact because you're just meditating but you see their socks <laughs> and they're really tacky you know really and they're, or they're wearing the same socks three days in a row and you're sitting next to them you can have a lot of judgments or in eating in the dining hall is a big place of judgment you know somebody comes in and they take a little bowl of food and you think oh who do they think they are right? <laughs> they're being so meditative they're not even eating much or they take a huge thing of food and you think oh yeah they can't meditate at all with that much they'll be asleep in 10 minutes after that but there's the judgment it just comes it just happens and it's it's actually very helpful to begin to see that looking at others and judging others will actually not help us be free because there's some belief there's some reason we're doing it i mean there is something there we think we need to do it we think we think we need to separate or be better than or something this is actually from ajahn chah talking about in the in the monastic because of course even in the monastery this happens if you have human beings this happens judging happens and uh ajahn chah says um it's not so helpful to watch other people if you are annoyed watch the annoyance in your own mind if others discipline is bad or they are not good monks this is not for you to judge you will not discover wisdom watching others the monk's discipline is is 
uh, a tool to use for your own meditation. It is not a weapon to use to criticize or find fault. No one can do your practice for you, and you cannot do practice for anybody else. Just be mindful of what's happening for you. Sometimes you may see other monks or nuns behaving badly. You may get annoyed. This is suffering unnecessarily. You may think like this, he is not as strict as I am. They are not serious meditators like us. Those monks are not good monks. He says, do not make comparisons. Do not discriminate. Let go of your opinions. Pay attention to your own self. This is our dharma. You can't possibly make everyone act as you wish or, or as you like them to be or have them be like you. This wish will only make you suffer. It is a common mistake for meditators to make. But watching other people won't develop wisdom. Simply pay attention to yourself, your own feelings. This is how you will understand. Actually, what my favorite note, you know, as teachers we get notes from students. And they come all kinds of notes. Mostly you get love notes from people. They, Usually when they're really happy or they liked your Dharma talk or something good, you said something that worked, and you get these really nice notes. And then once in a while you get these really not nice notes, you know. It's like, you know, your talk, your talk sucked and why did they ever say you could teach and things like that. And, you know, praise and blame in Buddhism, it comes. But this is my favorite note that I ever got, really, truly. It's, I don't save most notes but I've saved this one, and it's like a little haiku. And it says, I have come to appreciate you. <laughs> I have come to appreciate you. So you can imagine where they came from, right? <laughs> That's right I love that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> So part of what Ajahn Chah is describing um, is the comparing mind. And that's another way we see the judging mind as we start comparing ourselves one to another. We're better than somebody, we're worse than somebody. In Buddhism, the term that's used to describe this kind of mind is conceit. And there are three conceits, three conceits that, they, that are talked about. One is the conceit of being better, I'm better than somebody. One is the conceit of being worse than somebody. And one is the conceit of being the same as somebody. And the reason why they, I believe, use this term that we translated as conceit, I actually don't know the Pali term, um, is that it posits a separate sense of self. It, it's always positing self and other. And the self-other delusion always puts us at odds, generally. It's always predicated on the sense of a separate concrete self here and that concretization of self out there. 
And so we judge others, we compare, we judge ourselves. And like I said, we judge ourselves for just about anything. On retreat, it's so highlighted. If we're walking, we judge because we're walking too fast. We should walk like somebody else, slower. Then we walk slow and we judge ourselves because we don't feel so connected. And then we decide, oh, hell with it. I'm not going to do walking meditation. I'm going to take a walk because it's beautiful and I haven't taken a walk in three days and I'm taking the walk and then I'm judging myself for taking the walk because I should be doing meditation. And the judging mind can just go on and on and on. Or we're being with the breath and then we're thinking a little. So we're judging ourselves for thinking. Or maybe a feeling starts to come and then we judge ourselves to have a feeling because we're supposed to be with the breath. And all of it's to keep things in place. All of it's to keep things in their... It's familiar. That judgment is familiar. It's one of the ways we know ourselves. It's one of the ways we can feel cozy. It may not feel good, but it's cozy. It's something we know. It's almost more uncomfortable sometimes to actually have the sense of judgment go away. Because then there's a way that we lose our orientation. We lose our sense of self. And so sometimes the judgments are really obvious. Sometimes they're really subtle. And in the meditative practice, Anything that takes us away that says what's happening now is wrong is a form of judgment. Anything that says what's happening now is wrong is a form of judgment. The practice of mindfulness, the art of mindfulness, is to actually be with what's happening now. Whatever it is. There are no distractions in mindfulness. There are some things we might not like but there are no distractions. So the function of keeping the sense of self in place. Start to pay attention, watch what happens even now. If you don't judge yourself, anybody else, even the talk. Or if you are judging, don't judge that. Don't add more judge. This is another way. This is, this is where it gets more subtle. Right? I'm giving a teaching on non-judgment and then you, there you are judging. Oh, look at that. Right? You're doing it again. So this is where we don't want to add another arrow. We don't want to add a second arrow or a third arrow. The mind judges, then we want to acknowledge it. We want to be mindful of that and see what happens because it will begin to lose its power at that point. And its function... Uh, here, let me just read you something. This is from Hamid Ali talking about the superego. 
and and when he says apex, it's because traditionally um, in psychology, when you look at the superego, and you look at how um, if if they try to um, give an image, they'll do a circle of the ego, and in the center, actually, they'll do the id or the animal instincts or the instinctual forces. Then they'll do the ego, the sense of self or personality. And then above it, they'll, they'll do another little circle on top of that. That's the superego. And so he says the superego is a structure that forms the apex of the psychic structure and includes the ideals of the personality or the sense of self and the principles of judgment. It is the seat of what is custom, customarily called the conscience. It develops mainly by internalizing and identifying with the prohibitions, rules, values, preferences, and preferences of the parents and society at large. So the, the values of the superego are interjected from our early childhood and from the society. He says, from our perspective, the superego is the inner coercive agency that stands against the expansion of awareness and inner freedom, regardless of how mild or reasonable it becomes. It is, a, so I'll say that again, that it is the inner coercive agency that stands against the expansion of awareness and freedom, regardless of how mild or reasonable it becomes. It is a substitute and a cruel one for direct perception and knowledge. Inner development requires that in time there be no internal coercive agencies. There will be instead inner regulation based on objective perception, understanding, and love. The best approach is to decrease the power and influence of the superego and to replace it with, where, uh, as, with awareness as much as possible. So, so what I'm hoping right now to do is posit the, the superego and that whole sense of judgment so we can begin to recognize it and partly we want to recognize it not only to disidentify and not only to begin to um, disengage from it and to undercut its power, but also to begin to recognize when it's absent and what that state of heart and mind is like, what that state of being is like when there is not this inner coercive agency at work but something that's more objective, clear, kind, loving, open, fresh, immediate, not based on the past. The judgment's always based on the past, some idea of how things are supposed to be, that it's supposed to be some other way than now. But when that's absent, we want to recognize that. We want to recognize non-judgment. We want to recognize the state of heart and mind when judgment is in abeyance. And the Buddha, his, his practice was very simple with Mara. 
in the Mara Suttas, over and over again, Mara keeps coming. And the Buddha has one main skillful means he uses. And it, it's really beautiful. He always, Mara comes, here's an example of Mara coming to bug the Buddha, judge the Buddha. Um, so the Buddha's thinking about enlightenment. This is after his enlightenment again. And Mara comes and now judges him because, you can hear, Mara says, you have forsaken the ascetic path by means of which men purify themselves. You are not pure. You fancy you are pure, but the path of purity is far from you. Right? He's totally judging the Buddha because the Buddha gave up the ascetic path. And he, he's trying to condemn him. He's trying to trip him up. And the Buddha always, it's beautiful, he says this one thing in the suttas. He says, I see you, Mara. I see you. I simply, I see you for what you are. He's objective, the Buddha. He sees the judgment for what it is. And actually, sometimes, I don't have an example here, but often uh, Mara will come in disguises. And it's a little, reminds me of like, you know, dressing up for Halloween, the kids come and they come to scare you. And, you know, if you really think they're gremlins, you might get scared. But you know that that's, it's just pretend. There's actually nothing real there. So there's another sutta when the Buddha was uh, in pain. He had a foot injury, right? The Buddha was free from suffering, but he also suffered. He, he had the pains of a human being. He had a bad back at one point. Here he had a foot injury and Mara addressed him. He says, what, are you stupefied that you lie down? Or else are you entranced by some poetic flight? Are there not many aims that you must still serve? Why do you dream away intent on sleep? You know, you can hear the tone in his voice. He's, he's condemning him. He's yelling at him. He's devaluing him or denigrating him because his foot hurts and he's lying down as if he shouldn't lie down. And the Buddha, in his simple way, just says, I see you, Mara. And then what happens, and it should happen like this for us, it doesn't happen usually so easily, is it said, Mara slinks away, or Mara walks away, head down, saying, the Blessed One has seen me. And that's it. He gives up. <laughs> so may it be like that for you. And this is the power of awareness. This is the power to become aware of what's happening and not have to believe it. Somebody said something on the retreat uh, today about not believing, I think it was Anna Douglas said, you know, don't believe your thoughts most of the time. Most of the time our thoughts are just... <laughs> not, they're not objective reality. And by objective, I mean a reality based, not based on the past or future. Reality that's grounded in the now, in the present moment, in the freshness and the aliveness and the reality of who and what we are. That we can feel and sense and taste and touch. And we can think about it too, but the thoughts are secondary to the direct experience. And it's why we emphasize in, in the basic teaching something like being mindful of the breathing. 
to start to orient to something that's alive in the present moment that's not based on the past or future because that breath can open up to the whole world, the whole reality beyond the conceptual, beyond the mental, beyond the past, beyond the future. And this is where the Dharma is found. This is the, the life of the Dharma, the reality of the Dharma. A couple other ways to work with judgment. Awareness is really important. Um, noticing if you feel bad about yourself. If you feel bad about yourself, judgment is in play. It's different than feeling some remorse or regret for something you did. Like, you know, we all do things that are unskillful. We all do things that, you know, we wish we hadn't done. To regret the action is not to condemn the actor. If we feel bad about ourselves, the judge is in place. The judge is happening to begin to see it. And then part of being aware of it, if the judge is in play, is to actually feel it, feel what it feels like. Often we'll feel um, small or um, weak or some kind of lack of strength or lack of value. Or, and then to feel that may be the beginning of actually being compassionate for ourselves. Some teachers like to recommend counting your judgments. Count them on, in a meditation sometimes. See how many times you judge yourself or judge your meditation. You know, don't go over a thousand in an hour. <laughs> or sometimes Joseph Goldstein likes to add a neutral phrase. You know, I'm a horrible meditator and the sky is blue. <laughs> to start to see it's just a thought. It's just a thought. It could be as neutral as any thought. It's very helpful to be, have a sense of humor. The judgment loses its power if you make a joke out of it. Okay, I am the worst meditator who ever lived. Who gives a shit? I'm going to sit here anyways. You know, go bug somebody else who's, who's not the worst meditator. I know I'm the worst. You can Woody Allen it a little bit. <laughs> and then there's just cutting at times. And the cutting is like, stop, no. And it's really, um, in the Tibetan tradition, you see the tankas with these wrathful deities. Well, the rat, one of the wrathful deities is the wrathful aspect of compassion. And it's actually a compassionate act to say, no more, I've had it, stop. And to really just cut it. And then, of course, loving-kindness is very helpful to cultivate, on an ongoing basis, a sense of appreciation, a sense of care, a sense of kindness for ourselves, for ourselves with all our foibles, for ourselves with all our lack of realization, for ourselves with all the things, you know, eating the ice cream, whatever it is that you do, that you end up to really actually cultivate a sense of kindness towards ourself as the beginning of really tapping the boundless kindness that is part of our birthright.
the boundless nature of our own heart. <clears throat> Oscar Wilde said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. <laughs> hmm. So the heart becomes an important part of the practice of non-judgment, of really seeing how does the heart respond to our difficulties or our suffering or our mistakes or our confusions? How does the heart actually respond instead of the judgment? And you can even practice, you can even play, seeing what it's like to put your attention in the heart center with the same experience of, oh, I blew it with something. And notice how the judgment comes from the mind, basically. And then see what happens as we hold it in, with the heart. Nizargadat Maharaj said, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.